the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Harbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Program. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and you're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life, a radio program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, life questions, church questions, anything and everything that's on your heart. We'll do the best that we can. It's been a good week on the program. The phones have been a little light, so we'd love your live calls. All you have to do is dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. I love Fridays because we get lots of church going on, but it's Church Sunday for all of us. For us, it's Communion Sunday here at Calvary Chapel, and we would love um, to know that when you go to church and if it's Communion Sunday at your church, uh, or even if it isn't, what you'll do is you'll offer your body to the Lord as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing. The King James says it's your reasonable service. In view of everything that God has done, it's your reasonable service. And that's how you get the most out of church. So uh, have a great, great weekend with the body of Christ. Tonight, assuming a pole doesn't fall on our building again, uh, we've got our Bible study in the book of Acts. We're going to finish Acts chapter 26 tonight. We've only got a couple more chapters before we're done in the book of Acts. Uh, And uh, Paul and I get to come for prayer, corporate prayer uh, tomorrow morning here at Calvary Chapel. And then... Uh, remember to turn your clocks back. Turn your clocks back. We get an extra hour of sleep. That hour we've been trying to catch up on, we get it back this weekend. Uh, one of the things that we always do here at Calvary Chapel, because there's always a few people who don't get it right, and they're either going to be early or they're going to be late. Uh, on time change Sundays, twice a year, we have uh, a pancake breakfast. So when people come, it's pancakes and some sausage and some scrambled eggs. and um, It's really a neat time for the body just to kind of hang out together. And uh, so we do that. Uh, we'll serve for the 8.30 service and for the 10.15 service, and then they'll start cleaning up right after the start of the second service. So if you want to join us for breakfast, you are invited. It costs absolutely nothing, but you will be blessed. Okay, let's get right to some questions. One more time, 340-9585 for your live calls. Here is a question that came in right at the end of the program yesterday from our mobile app anonymously. Uh, He or she says, I'm curious as to how we should respond to Freemasonry. Could you please offer some guidance Uh, without getting into detail because uh, Freemasonry is antithetical to Christianity. Uh, By that, I do not mean that there aren't some Christians who are also Masons. Uh, God always has a remnant some places. I will say this, that Christians who are Masons are Christians who don't really understand their Bible. Uh, Christians who 
um, well, frankly, they're 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 engaging in practices that are decidedly anti-biblical. So, um, it, the, the, I think the way Christians should respond to it is to avoid it. Paul says in the book of Romans to be uh, s- simple um, about that which is evil. And while Freemasonry might do some good things, and there's good people who are Masons. Uh, it's just something that stands in contradistinction to our word of God. So it's just not something Christians should be involved in at all. I think that's the easiest way, Anonymous, for me to broach the question. Here is another question that came in from our mobile app from Thomas. Good afternoon, Pastor Ron. My little girl told me she wants to read in the Bible about where it talks about what disciples are. Since she's only 12, I'm sure she relates the word disciple solely uh, with Jesus and not Webster's definition. She didn't say it, but I think she wants to talk or to walk more closely with Jesus. Is there any direction that I can give her uh, more succinct than read the four Gospels, Acts, and Paul's letters? This is so very important, and I don't want to overwhelm her. Uh, Thomas, a couple of things. I wouldn't worry about overwhelming her. She's the one who's excited. Uh, Believe me, she wants to be overwhelmed. Now, Thomas, we've got sort of, and I say this without boasting because it's nothing that, that we've done or I've done, but um, the Lord has kind of started a little mini revival in our junior high school ministry. We've got a whole bunch of 12 and 13 and 14-year-olds who all they want is more Bible study. And that's how they learn. They learn the same way, Thomas, that you and I learned, one page at a time. So a couple of things that I would suggest, rather than just reading things, um, make sure she understands what a disciple is. It's a student, somebody who walks with Jesus. To be my disciple, Jesus said, you must deny yourself, pick up your cross daily, and follow me. That's what a disciple is. So let her know that this is a great desire that she has in her heart. And that when she walks with Jesus, when she's talking to the Lord, she's demonstrating exactly the characteristics that a true disciple of Jesus would demonstrate. But there's much, much more. Get her involved. If you've got a good junior high group at your church, then get her involved in that. You know, one of the things, and it's hard to, I, I you know, it, it sounds boastful, but, but it's really not. I, I trust my heart with you here. But our junior high group, these kids, are hungrier than their parents are. You know, on Monday nights, as an example, we have a high school and junior high school Bible study. They meet the same night that our women's study and our men's study does. And when our women took off and our men took off for a few weeks because of, a, of the school getting started back again, and, you know, we just want to give people an opportunity to get back in the schedule and the flow of things. Um, the kids came to their teachers and said, we don't want to get up. Can we still meet? And so on Monday nights, we had the high schoolers and the junior high schoolers still here. And the junior high school group gets more and more involved. They want to be more and more involved in service. So tell her that a servant or a disciple rather serves. And ask her what kind of service does she think the Lord wants her to provide? And then get her involved in serving others. And then most importantly, Thomas, and again, this isn't very specific in terms of what to read or what to do, but but I want to, I'm intentionally trying to avoid the what to do's. We always think that, well, if I do something, then that'll happen. No. Talk to her about being with Jesus. Tell her when she's alone, she goes to bed at night, she can talk to Jesus till she falls asleep. When she's walking to school or walking with friends in the neighborhood, she can talk to Jesus. She can always be aware of his presence. And 12 years old is not too young. She's not going to be overwhelmed. Right now, Jesus said, unless you become as a child, uh, you'll not inherit the kingdom of God. These children get it. So praise God that he's grabbed her heart. And then... I know I said the last thing was the most important, but this might be even more important. Make sure that she sees your walk with Jesus thriving and growing. 
Make sure that she, she sees your joy and your gratitude. You know, when I dedicate babies, Thomas, I always say, Lord, as soon as this, this child knows she's a sinner and needs to be saved, at whatever age that's going to be, I pray that the most natural thing for her would be to want mommy and daddy's Jesus. Because they see, children are watching, they see whether or not your Jesus is real. They see whether or not your Jesus sustains you through difficult times. They see whether your life is filled with joy and with gratitude. And that's what a disciple is. So we'll keep reading the Bible to her. Make sure she has her own and that she's got some time to read it. Disciple, the word is the root from the same word that we get discipline from. Tell her to discipline herself, to read on a daily basis. You know enough, whatever is enough for a 12-year-old. And I'm just going to be praying with you, Thomas, that the Holy Spirit grabs all this girl's heart like never before. What a wonderful, wonderful thing to ask. 340-9585. Let's go to San Antonio and talk with Philip on line one. Philip, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Philip, are you there? Oh, we lost Philip. Philip, um, 340-9585. You can feel free to call back. Here is a question from Les. Uh, and I think I touched on this one yesterday. It says, or on Wednesday, rather. Uh, Les said, Ephesians 4.30 says not to grieve or quench the Holy Spirit. How can we do that if the Holy Spirit is God? Yeah, I did touch on this on Wednesday, Les, but I wanted to do just a little bit more. Um, I said on Wednesday that one of the amazing, and not in a good way, but one of the amazing things that we have to consider every day is that although God is all-powerful, the only force on earth powerful enough to stop Him is you and me, our free will. So we grieve, we quench the work the Holy Spirit wants to do, regardless. He won't force us. All we have to do is obey. So, Les, I wanted to add that for sure. I think we got Philip back on line one. Philip, thanks for calling back. You're on the air. Hello, Pastor. Hi, Philip. How are you? I'm doing really well, thanks. Thank you for taking my call. And uh, my question has to do with um, getting some clarification, your opinion, and maybe some scriptures to help us understand the commandments as we believe them and whether you believe that our Messiah, our Savior, kept the commandments, meaning, you know, not eating unclean foods, keeping uh, Sabbath as the day of rest, and how, you know, I guess after the Second Temple period, you know, we read the Septuagint, we we read some of the other scriptures, and then, you know, you have like a quiet period, but I know it's not quiet, it's a lot of books. So, um, you know, I guess a lot of might be subject to interpretation, but I would love to hear your thought and direction as far as uh, whether it's important or not to keep the commandments and whether you think the Messiah kept the commandments. Okay, I can do that, Philip. Thank you for, for calling. I appreciate Thank you calling back. Uh, unequivocally, uh, Philip, Jesus kept the Ten Commandments. He, he kept the law perfectly, not only the letter of the law, but the spirit behind the letter of the law, that's what the whole purpose was of the Sermon on the Mount from the Beatitudes on forward in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Luke has a similar teaching in Luke chapter 6. It's a different teaching, but uh, a different occasion for the teaching, but it was a, a teaching that Jesus uh, uh, repeated quite often, evidently, throughout his ministry. So yes, Jesus, when he was here, he lived when, in 100% fulfillment of the law. Jesus came to fulfill a law that we could not keep. He came to redeem us from the curse of the law, Galatians 3.13 says, and the curse of the law was that it couldn't accomplish the will of God. God's will is that man and, and God would walk together, that we would have sweet and, and holy fellowship. Uh, but because we are sinners, 
uh, Jesus had to keep the law, so he qualified to be a sacrifice for those of us who could not. And in the process, uh, we received the righteousness of God. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased, the father um, declared uh, at the end of Jesus' ministry. That was simply because he finished his course. He kept the law. And when he cried out in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if there's any way this cup can pass from me, um, the, the Father said, No. Jesus said, Nevertheless, thy will, not my will be done. And then, Philip, he went to his death for you and me. He kept a law that condemned us. Now, with regard to whether or not we should keep the law, um, we understand that, and, and specifically you mentioned the Sabbath, and eating um, unclean foods. Um, Jesus gave us, before he left, a completely new covenant. Because he kept the law, we're no longer under law. We're under a completely new dispensation, dispensation of grace, God's unmerited favor to the infinitely ill-deserving. And because he kept it, and we can't, we now walk in that favor of God. So we don't have to worship on the Jewish Sabbath. Uh, that's uh, really the only one of the Ten Commandments that isn't repeated in the New Testament. We find that out because uh, Hebrews chapter 4 says Jesus was our Sabbath rest. The Sabbath was a picture of the rest, the ultimate rest that we're going to find in Christ. So we don't have to worship on the Sabbath. Paul raised the stakes. He said every day is a day to worship God. Every day by faith is a day to rest in the Lord, eating unclean foods. Jesus declared um, to Peter, and we also have it written by Paul, that he pronounced all foods clean. So the law no longer strangles us. It no longer has a hold on us. And I hope this makes sense to you, Philip. We no longer have to keep the law. We get to do that. We get to live a life that pleases the Lord. And, of course, that's a life centered on personal holiness and walking with Jesus. So, Philip, I hope that helps. Good question. Let's go to Carrie on line two. Carrie, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Yeah, hi, Pastor Ron. Um, I had a question, one, uh, for me, and then, two, my son Christian had a question. Uh, his question is, why did God create Satan? And my question is, is um, could you tell us the importance of Reformation uh, Day and uh, the significance of that? And uh, that's it, and I'll go ahead and hang up. Okay, I can do that. Uh, let me start with, with uh, your son's question, uh, Carrie. Um, why did God create Satan? He created Satan the same reason he created you and me, uh, to worship him. And Satan, of course, if you read Ezekiel 28, especially if you've got the King James Version, it appears that, that Lucifer, the angel that turned into Satan, was, uh, by some descriptions, the worship leader of heaven. He was so beautiful, so majestic, so powerful, that as he raised his wings, if angels in heaven have wings, the music emanated. So he created Satan to worship him. Now, here's the problem. If God forced our choice, it really wouldn't be a choice at all. And so all created things, whether they're angels or humans, all created things, things that have souls, things that are going to live forever and eternity, we had to make a choice who we're going to serve. And Satan, for some reason unknown to us, I have an opinion, but for some reason unknown to us, uh, Satan wanted to be God, no longer content to worship God, but he had his I wills, I will cast my throne above those high. He wanted to be worshipped instead of a worshiper. And God in his infinite love, God in his infinite love wants us to choose, and we choose whether we love God or whether we're going to reject God. And when we die, or in angels' case, demons' case, they, they won't die. They're going to eventually be separated from God for eternity. Well, that's what we call hell. So God created Lucifer, a beautiful angel. And just like humans who mess up, Lucifer messed up. 
pride was his sin. And pride is sort of the sin behind all other sins. So I hope that helps your son understand that. You know, the, the idea that, well, if God knew he was going to turn to the devil. Why didn't he create him? Well, there, there would have been something, some other angel, because God gives everybody a choice. And I love the fact that he gives both those who reject him and those who accept him the opportunity, the equal choice to know God. I always think of the two um, uh, thieves on the cross, both hurling insults at Jesus at the beginning, one of them continuing to do so, and the other one watching Jesus die, listening to what he says, and then coming to the realization that, look, we deserve what we get. This man has done nothing to deserve his death. And then he cried out for help, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So, for your son, Carrie, the angels had a one-time choice forever. The angels aren't going to get another choice. Every angel chose at that point. Are we going to go with God? We know that a third of the angels fell with Lucifer. Um, your second question, Reformation Day. I think it was just Wednesday, wasn't it? Wednesday was the day. And uh, historically in the church, uh, it, it, it's enormously significant. It's a day that Lucifer... That Lucifer, Luther, I'm sorry, I was talking about Lucifer, uh, that Martin Luther um, nailed his 95 Thesis on the church door at Wittenberg. And in the process of that, it was October 31st, 1517, uh, and, and really that started a whole revelation. A Catholic monk, a disgruntled, a sad Catholic monk. That's what Martin Luther was. And the book of Romans changed his life. Changed his life. He, for the first time, had his heart and his eyes opened to grace. And it changed the history of the church. That doesn't mean that Martin Luther was perfect. It certainly doesn't mean that Martin Luther uh, and, and the Lutherans that get their name from him don't have some problems. Uh, Martin Luther never desired to leave the Catholic Church. That was not his intent. Um, but when they kicked him out, he had no choice. And um, so, so it was it was a whole new way of thinking at, at just the right time. And the work that was started by Martin Luther on that day is being finished, carried to this very day. Um, so that's the value of it. Now, having said that, I was just having this conversation. Uh, with somebody before the program started. You know, we have All Saints Day um, that that we celebrated this week, um, Protestant denominations. Um, you know, there's just no value in in celebrating or, or looking carefully, being careful for the right word, uh, or venerating um, the saints have gone before us. Church history, if it's replete with anything, it's replete with human error. And so w we revere Jesus. We revere Jesus. There's no need to visit those who have gone before us, those recognized especially by the Catholic Church as saints, when the truth is we're all saints. Here at Calvary Chapel, obviously we don't celebrate something like that, but if we had an All Saints Day celebration here, it would be like giving ourselves a party because we're the saints. The saints aren't the people who've died and gone to heaven. We're the saints. They, they were and are saints, but they're no different than you and me. They were good and they were bad, covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's what we ought to celebrate, Carrie. So, um... The Reformation had great importance, historically. But we have to remember that while Martin Luther might have pounded the nails into the door of the church, it was Jesus who grabbed a hold of Martin Luther's heart. And the result is that, historically, we've been transformed. We, we've been changed. Imagine what it would be like today if there were no... Bible teachers. Imagine what it would be like today if we were under the authority of the Roman Catholic Church. If tradition was as valuable or authoritative as the Word of God. 
So we honor men like Martin Luther. We thank God for men like Martin Luther. Same thing would be true for John Wesley, for John Calvin. But none of them were perfect. None of them deserve honor. Just Jesus Christ. You know, Carrie, and this isn't what you asked, but one of the things that we have to avoid, and we're just a little over a minute before the break in the program, um, one of the things that we have to avoid is this natural instinct that we humans have to elevate other people. You know, uh, the Apostle Paul considered himself the worst of all sinners. He's my personal hero, but my understanding is that he's only in that position because of the power given to him, the calling given to him. He says, I'm anointed by God, chosen by God, sent by God. And so our thanks shouldn't be to Paul, although I'm grateful for the things that he's taught me, the things that I've learned. But my gratitude goes out to Jesus for raising up men like Paul. And if Paul was listening to this in person, he'd say amen to that. We've got 30 minutes left in the week, 340-9585. That's 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We will be back in two minutes. the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back it's kind of sad to say we only have 30 minutes left in the week 340-9585 here is a question from mandy she says what's the difference between salvation and rewards in heaven. Um, Mandy, there's a big difference. Um, salvation simply happens, as you know, when we give our heart to Jesus Christ, when we're born again. It doesn't happen when we're baptized. It doesn't happen when we do good things or when we become a member of a church. It happens when we surrender our will to the will of God, when we repent of our sin. Now, the rewards in heaven are the things that we get for the work that we did here on earth. I've got another question immediately following this about works. But uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Romans chapter 12, talks about the judgment at the Bema seat of Christ. That's the reward seat of Christ that's going to happen uh, when we go to heaven. Now, it's not a judgment for salvation. It's a judgment of our works. And 1 Corinthians 3 talks specifically about it, it, it being sort of the discerning line between works that are good versus works that are good for nothing. It talks about how the works will be tested, and if they survive the fire, then we will be rewarded. There will be crowns waiting for us in heaven. So the idea here deals not only with the things that we do, but with the motives. Here's the question for us, Mandy, as we contemplate uh, a 21st century church in, in the United States. We have way too many churches that are sort of attributing salvation to what we do instead of what Jesus has already done for us. And so I'll give you an example that we talked about in our Bible study a couple Sundays ago about giving. If I give to God, give to the church, and I do it because I want God to give something back to me, then there's no reward for that. That's a work that we burned up. What was our motive? Our motive was to give to get. But if our motive is to give for no other reason and we're so grateful for what God has given to us, then when we get to heaven, we're going to get rewards, awards, crowns for those works. And it's very important. Those crowns are crowns that we want. I've had some people who tried to be the super spiritual types, you know, say, well, I'm not trying to get him for salvation I just, or for, my, for rewards. I just want to be with Jesus. Um, that may sound spiritual, but it's really not. Paul said there's a crown stored up for me, the crown of righteousness. 
I want it. I don't want to miss anything that God has for me, Mandy. And so our works, not for salvation, but our works will be judged, and, and Jesus is going to give us rewards for what we do. Now, the bad side of that is that if he had works for us to do, works that were created in advance from before the foundation of the world, and we don't do them, then we're going to lose the rewards that he had for us. So that's the difference. There's, there's no work that gets us into heaven. But once we are his and we're going to heaven, then out of a grateful heart, just for no other reason, our hearts are grateful, then we offer our bodies to him and do works. Now that kind of leads to the next question. This comes from Darius. Darius says, I know we're not saved by works, so how important are good works in our relationship with God? Tonight, in, in the study we're doing here, Paul says, uh, Darius, that we should show that we are saved by works of repentance. In other words, show that our claim to Christ is genuine. Our lives ought to be such that everybody can see and say, what happened to him or what happened to them? Here's the problem, Darius. There's a bunch of people that answer an altar call or they get baptized. They have that moment where they're under conviction of the Holy Spirit and they have an emotional conversion rather than a genuine conversion. And they say they're Christians. They rest on that for the rest of their lives. But you could look at their life and there's no change at all. How would anybody know that they're believers? So you're right, we're not saved by works. But James, the Lord's half-brother, said, faith without works is dead. In other words, it's not even a real faith. I can say I believe in Jesus, but if my life doesn't reflect that belief, well, then it demonstrates that I haven't really met him at all. So good works are important, not for salvation, but because we are saved. And every believer, every believer, Darius, according to Jesus' own words, need to let our light so shine before men that they see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. It's not to see our good works so that we get glory, but so that God, our Father in heaven, is glorified. So make sure that distinction always stays with you, Darius. We're not saved by any work except the work Jesus has already done. But because I'm saved, I am so grateful that I'm going to do what Jesus wants me to do. Those are good works. Not works that somebody else can't do, but we all should do them. I was just thinking, and oh, Thomas, this is, this is helpful for your 12-year-old daughter as well. I was just thinking during the course of answering these two questions, um, it's important to teach our children to serve. At Calvary Chapel here, we have a, a, a ministry called Growing in Servanthood. And it's a ministry where the kids work alongside adults. And they minister Sunday at church. Uh, we'll have kids as young as five and six years old. We'll have kids serving communion with adults. When church is over after third service, you'll see kids washing windows, kids vacuuming, kids cleaning the mirrors, kids taking out trash, supervised, of course. But the idea is we're teaching them the value of serving the Lord, of doing good works. Let's go to Jimmy on line one. Jimmy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, can you hear me? I can hear you, Jimmy. Can you hear me? Okay. I can hear you. Okay. There's a friend of mine that, that um, he came, uh, uh, that he's been asking me to pray for him constantly and help him. Uh, and he came, uh, and he's coming along, and he's going through counseling and everything. But um, through, not through me, but through uh, Cornerstone. But. I was going to tell you, uh, he, he still, and I told him uh, he, he comes from a, you know, a Catholic faith background, and 
I think he's debating whether to switch over to Christianity or what. But he, 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 he um, we're talking about purgatory today. And I said, well, I haven't really seen in the Bible where purgatory is. And there, is there anything in the Bible that says purgatory? No, nothing at all, Jimmy. That's what I thought. I, I mean, I don't know everything in the Bible, so... Yeah, it's a Catholic. It's a Catholic invention. It was a a way to raise money, uh, pray your dead relatives out of purgatory. Uh, there's no substantiation for it biblically, and it's in fact it's it's antithetical to to what the Bible teaches. Um, so it, it's just not true at all. Okay. Well, that's what I thought, and and you know I try to learn as much as I can, but. I'm not as uh, knowledgeable as you or a lot of people. Well, a year from a year from now, Jimmy, you can be study to show yourself approved, a workman rightly dividing the word of God, and because you want to help your friend and you want to help other people, and God will use you. You put the word of God in you; He'll bring it out of you. Um, so, so the the great thing when anybody ever says that I don't know as much as you or uh, I haven't been reading the Bible very much, I can always say, well, that can change today. And it will change yeah. your life, and it will change the opportunities, the ways that the Lord uses you. So pray for your friend, and, and uh, tell him to seek out a church that really teaches the Bible, a church where there's great fellowship, um, a church where they want more than just your money. Okay, Jimmy? Yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah, well, he's coming <laughs> along. He, he, just, he, he reminds me of me when I first got saved. And I was just going back and forth, like, well, I'm going to go, still, I'm going to go to my Catholic church, and then I'm going to go to a, a Christian non-denominational. And I said, well, you know, I was in the same place you were over 20 years ago, and I finally made a decision. And I said, well, I'm going to stay with, you know, a non-denominational, because I'm learning more. Thank, yep. Thank you for your witness, Jimmy. I think I think the Holy Spirit's going to grab his heart. All right. You, were, all right. you take care. You and Paula take care. Thank you, Jimmy. God bless you. Appreciate you calling. Always good to hear from you. You too. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here is an anonymous question. It seems like God doesn't want Christians to be rich. Why is He opposed to wealth and comfort? Anonymous. It's not that God doesn't want Christians to be rich. It's that God wants Christians hardened soul. And it's hard, Jesus said, for rich men to enter the kingdom of God. He made a story that would have made sense to the people listening. There was a, a, a needle gate, and he said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for rich men to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the reason is because rich people trust in money. Rich people trust in money. They don't trust in God. That's generally true. That's why when the rich young ruler walked away from Jesus, he walked away sad. Jesus said to him, uh, sell what you have and give it to the poor and follow me. And he was unwilling to make that choice. That's not that he wanted him to be poor. He understood that this rich young ruler was consumed by his wealth. He wasn't going to trust God because he trusted in his money. There was another story Jesus told, not a parable, true thing. He was watching the temple treasury, he and his disciples. A lot of rich people lined up putting a lot of money into the temple offering. And one little widow put in the equivalent of a penny. And Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, that widow gave more than all of the others. And if you understand the, the Greek language, it's more than all the others combined. Those disciples would look at that and say, well, well she only gave a tiny bit. What, what good is that going to do? And Jesus said, no, the others put in out of her wealth, but this one woman, she put in all she had. In other words, when she went home that night, she had only God to trust. When you give everything, regardless if it's a lot or a little, when you give everything, and that's what we're as Christians commanded to do, the only one we can trust in then is Jesus. So it's not like God says, oh, I don't want my people to be comfortable. Except that comfort sometimes makes us lazy spiritually. Comfort makes us compromise. Comfort the church in Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. Jesus said, you say you are rich and have need of nothing, but I say you're poor, pitiful, wretched, naked, and blind. 
sometimes comfort makes us lukewarm. He said, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth because of your lukewarmness. The reality, Anonymous, is that there's a lot of really, really wealthy Christians. I think about the founder of Chick-fil-A, the amount of money he gives away is staggering. And make no mistake, and he understands it. His name is Dan Cathy. He understands it. That God blesses him in spite of who he is. And everything he has, he owes to God. Now, God lets him live a very rich, comfortable life. But at the same time, the amount of money he gives away for kingdom causes is staggering. I'm all for Christians being rich, but that wealth comes from God only when those Christians understand that it all belongs to Him. So Anonymous has nothing to do with God wanting to be poor. What He wants you to do is be trustworthy. And here's what I can tell you. The Christians who understand that everything they have belongs to God, those are the ones that He can touch. And He can bless materially because He knows they won't hold on to His money tightly. I think, Anonymous, we have a, a problem. Our problem is that we think what we earn through our hard work is ours. I'm going to give God 10% of it. The reality is He owns 100% of everything we have. When we understand that, then He can't help but to bless. I was the beneficiary in Bible college of a, a man who was a billionaire and that was back in the 90s when billionaires were uncommon. But he was always telling the pastors at the Bible College, if there are any students who are really promising and really committed to the Lord and they can't pay, I'll, I got it. And I was one of those men. And when I couldn't afford to stay a second semester, he gave it, and one of the pastors was telling me about him, not telling me who it was, because that would have been a betrayal of trust. But he was saying, you know, this guy's just so wealthy, he says he, he, he keeps shoveling all the money God gives him out the front door. He says, turned around, and God shoveled in with a bigger shovel a whole bunch more money. And that's what God wants us to understand. Our money's not our own. It's his. When you understand that, Anonymous, you might be surprised. I tell our church all the time, every single believer should pray for the gift of giving. Because if you're willing, God will give. And if you've been given the gift of giving, it necessarily means that you have to have something to give. So I hope that answers your question. Um, Dale says, since nobody's been to heaven, how do we know it's not going to be boring? Well, Jesus said that he has waiting for us more than we can ever ask or imagine. He lives in unapproachable light. We know that Paul has been to heaven, so somebody has. And he says that he saw things there that are inexpressible, things that man's not permitted to tell. The reality is they defied human description. And that's why Paul could say to die is better by far. To, to go and be with Christ is the best. So I don't know where Christians, I know where the world gets it, but I don't know, Dale, where Christians ever get this idea that heaven's going to be boring. That we're going to just sort of float around on crowds and strum harps. We're not going to be angels. Everything in heaven is going to be infinitely better than the best things here on earth. And we need to know that. Can you imagine what it's going to be like, Dale, to look in that face shining like the sun in all of its brilliance? For the first time to be able to understand just how high and wide and long and deep the love of God for us is. To look at those scars in his hands and in his feet. To look at that face that's been beaten beyond being recognized in human form. And to look in that face and hear him say, all of this was for you. Now, love makes boring impossible in heaven. 
So don't think of it that way. Instead, think of it based on what the Word of God tells us. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. We've got a question here from Charles. Uh, he says, uh, Pastor Ron, I've fallen out of the habit of daily Bible reading. How do I get as excited to read as I once was? You know, Charles, I think God meets us as babies in the Lord. Um, he meets us where and when we need to be met. He takes care of us. If if you and, and uh, have had any babies, uh, you you feed them baby food. And mealtime is always exciting. They get excited to eat and you play games with them. Well, when we're brand new believers, everything that we learn is new. But then we grow up. And see, reading can't be a matter of whether or not you're excited. Reading has to be a discipline. It's one of those things that as we become adults, we learn that we have to do some things. You know, I like playing baseball, and I like playing golf, and I like doing all kinds of things with Paula. Um, but, but when you grow up, you also have to go to work. And sometimes work isn't the most exciting thing. You have to discipline yourself to do it. Well, how much more with the Word of God? The sword of the Spirit, how much more? And here's the thing, if you will discipline yourself and make the effort, I promise you Jesus will meet you in your reading and the excitement will come back. I think that's the difference when you're a baby, God does all the work for you. As we grow up, we got to do the work on our own and then wait for Jesus to bless us, and he does. So don't wait until you get excited to read. Make it a habit to read. Sacrifice some of the time you're doing other things to be in the Word. Why? Because you want to hear from Jesus. So Charles, it's not waiting until you've got goosebumps. It's doing it when you don't feel well. It's doing it when you've got problems. It's doing it when you've got a million other things that you would rather be doing. It's doing it because it gives you the opportunity to hang out with Jesus and be right there. Here's a question from Patrick. He says, what am I doing wrong? I want to speak in tongues, but I don't. Well, Patrick, I don't know you, so I can't really answer that question specifically, but I can tell you generally, um, it's a matter of faith. Uh, you know, I, I think often we, we think when, when God gives me a gift and I'm not going to be able to help myself, I'm going to have to do it. I remember when I got the gift of tongues, I thought that, that when I got the gift of tongues, it would be like the book of Acts, this power would come over me and I wouldn't be able to stop babbling. But that's not it at all. We have to receive it by faith. God promised the gift of tongues. If you want the gift of tongues, receive it by faith. God said, through the Apostle Paul, he said, I would that you all spoke in tongues more than I do. But there are times when we can't understand it. It doesn't make sense to us. Maybe even that we feel a little bit silly. But that's okay with God. So you receive it by faith. Let me make this suggestion, Patrick. Go take a walk with Jesus and tell him, this is a gift I want, Lord. It's a gift that elevates my worship experience with you. It, it increases my intimacy with you. Who wouldn't want that? So Jesus, I want it. Pour out your spirit upon me. And then start speaking. The devil will be right there and he'll tell you, it's silly, that's not God, that's just you. But you know what? Walk in the gift. Just let words come. It's just you and Jesus. And he's delighted that you trust him with that. So don't wait until you're compelled to do it. Don't wait until you can't stop doing it. Just receive the gift by faith. And tongues is a gift, Patrick, and people misunderstand what I'm saying here, so please listen carefully. I believe with all of my heart that God would give tongues to anybody and everybody who asks it and wants it and who will receive it. Now we know that some don't, many don't. 
But why wouldn't we expect that God would give us this gift that Paul says we should all have? The people that don't get it, don't get it because they don't have the faith. It doesn't make sense. Some people can't walk sort of in unknown territory. But you want it, so receive it. We're inside, I think, a little over two minutes left. Let me see a question I can do. Here's one I could do, I think, from Greg. Uh, two minutes on that. Um, Greg says, what do you think is the best form of church government? And then he says, I favor congregational voting. Um, Greg, read Exodus, the golden calf incident, and tell me then what you think about congregational voting. That is a form of church government that God's Word knows nothing about. I think we are so decidedly American that we think our vote matters. And it really doesn't. I'm not telling you not to vote in the election. I'm just telling you as it relates to congregational voting. Our opinion matters. No, when you go to church, serve your church. I think the best form of church government is obviously what we practice here at Calvary Chapel. We are a pastor-led church. I have a group of elders that I am accountable to. Uh, those elders understand that their job is to support the vision of ministry God has given us. And I've had a great elder board for the longest time. My original elders are still with me, and we've had to add a few as we've grown. But make no mistake, God has always given a vision to a man, and that man carries out the vision with the power of God. And when God can trust that man, now not all men respond the way they should in that environment. But when God can trust that man, there's no end to the wonderful things that will be done. So Greg, I hope that makes sense to you. What a great week, and we've got a great weekend coming up. I know you do too. Go to church, find somebody who looks like they need to be loved on, and be the one that God uses. May the Lord bless you and keep you. We've got Acts chapter 26 tonight at Calvary Chapel, and Luke chapter 7 on Sunday. May the Lord bless you and keep you. We'll see you next week. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.